Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, joined as always by our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason, how are you today? Good, glad to be here. And uh, do you want to introduce our guest? I would love to introduce our guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest today. Uh, our guest is Jason Rugg. Uh, Jason, great to have you here. Uh, so uh, excited about what you're going to talk to us about today. So uh, let me read your bio and then we'll dive right in. Jason spent 2016 to 2021 building and managing an indie animation studio for Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. He has animated and edited over 100 episodes of children's animated TV, as well as leading and overseeing the production team. Jason started animating when he was 11, making brick films with Legos, and has been making animation ever since. He and his partner, Sean McDuffie, are in pre-production right now on an animated feature called One World Order. Welcome, Jason, to talk to us about animation. Thank you, Christian. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I figure I should use a different voice when I'm in the guest mode versus the host mode. Yeah, it's going to be a very schizophrenic <laughs> experience for you today. We're doing this today because uh, there are several reasons. One, I'm hopping on a plane and heading out to France tomorrow. And uh, I really wanted to make today's episode easy and simple. And I was also been thinking about a problem I've been trying to solve with the Taking Carrington documentary. And that is we are talking about a very old backstory for this town um, way before the Middle Ages, but it also covers the Middle Ages, which there is no film or archival photos. And we're trying to figure out how do we tell this backstory and this history. And I have been seeing a lot of documentaries over the last couple of years that are incorporating animation into their documentaries. And I've been playing around with this idea, and I thought, who better to have on the podcast today to talk to us about using animation and documentary storytelling than an animator uh, who's been sitting with me for the last three years. So, uh, <laughs> Jason, I heard a little bit about in your bio that you started since you were 11. Talk to me about that process for you um, and you know what kind of animation you have been doing since you were little and how that's changed over time. Yeah. So I, um, I started out drawing comic books and that sort of thing when I was, I was a little kid, you know, really small. I don't even know when I started doing that. And I was terrible at drawing. And so one thing that I found was a lot easier was to start doing stop motion animation, which stop motion is like, um, you know, chicken run, that sort of thing, Wallace and Gromit, where it's like, it's clay or toys or that sort of thing. And you take pictures, move them, take a picture, move them, take a picture, move them, take a picture which is, I think, really the easiest way to learn the principles of animation because you don't have to worry about drawing, <laughs> right? You don't have to worry about form. You don't have to worry about that sort of thing because the toy or whatever you're shooting from, in my case, it was Lego, is always the same. And if you change its perspective, it naturally, you don't have to worry about that stuff. You have to learn the principles of motion, which are really important to making animation look good. Um, so that's where I started when I was 11. They were terrible. Um, but that's when I started doing voice acting too. I started, you know, recording, uh, lines and putting them to pictures and that sort of thing and figuring out, okay, how can I tell this story, um, with, you know, one person doing five different voices, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, so I did that all the way up into probably high school, um, with, with Legos, that sort of thing. And then I kind of transitioned out of animation for a little bit. And I really focused on like filmmaking, like I'm going to, I'm going to shoot films, you know, with the, you know, like, you know, real actors, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then, um, 
the first job I got out of college was editing a podcast. And then we started a animation studio. So, <laughs> you know, just that natural flow of going from of a course. podcast to, to making animations. And that's when I really, really got back into it. I, I did some like motion graphic stuff in between there, you know, like explainer videos, like how to use this thermostat, you know, that sort of thing, which are more like. Right. And so, so I'm going to stop you right there. Explain yeah. motion graphics for me. Yeah. So motion graphics are a little bit um, simpler, but also can be more complicated than like a character animation. Those are two very different things. The principles of motion apply to both, but making someone expressive versus making titles and objects and explaining things interesting. So I'm sure you've seen a motion graphics video. Um, you know, you go look up how, how do I use my washing machine or that sort of thing? And they have a 3d model of the washing machine and they zoom in on the buttons and they highlight the buttons and say, you push this and then they hold it for five seconds. And you know, that sort of thing, that sort of stuff is more along the motion graphics sort of thing. Or, you know, I, there's, there's millions of motion graphics styles. Um, some are 3d, some are 2d, but there's like this really simple motion graphic style that's really taken over recently of like characters that are like really just blobs <laughs> it's like a blob of color for the head a blob of color for the hand you know that sort of thing and, and um yeah so i've done a couple of those too um yeah all right so most graphics you yeah. were you were starting off uh in this tv studio doing you know motion graphics right um yeah we did a little bit of motion graphics for we did a video podcast so we did a little bit of motion graphics there where it's like titles animating it you know that sort of thing um, but for the most part, then we we transitioned into making uh, children's animated TV, which was a really interesting time because we were using this beta software that was partial motion capture, partial live animation, you know, that sort of thing. So it was a very weird time that we were trying to figure out. There were barely any And tutorials. explain those two things, motion capture <laughs> and live animation. Yeah. So traditional animation um, that you're thinking of, like Disney, you know, that sort of thing, it's either drawn on you know, a cell or, you know, a piece of transparent film or digitally into a computer. And you draw a new frame for each individual piece. And there are layers of that. You know, the background might stay the same or whatever, but you draw a new character in a new pose. So the animation we were doing is more what's called keyframe animation, which is like your character stays in one particular pose or one particular angle, that sort of thing. And that has been drawn by an artist. And then you move pieces of that or you warp pieces of that. So instead of drawing a whole new frame, you take the existing artwork and you warp it or you move it or you, you know, put bones in it, what we call bones and bend it in a certain way. So uh, motion capture animation really capitalized. It was 2D motion capture animation, which is still a very weird um, place. There's not that much of that that exists. And so motion capture animation is taking that keyframe animation so you take an existing piece of artwork and then you warp that but it's following like your face or it's following your body and that was a really interesting time because nothing like that really existed at the time it was a very new piece of software and so live capture animation is like normally you have to go through and you have to do things frame by frame right or okay i want to start here and end here and you set those two positions and then it interpolates the frames in between them if you do live capture animation it's like you can actually move things in real time and it records that in real time hmm. or halftime animation, which is where you record at half the normal speed and you move a thing and it records that at regular speed. So then you could do a really intricate move that you couldn't normally pull off 
And you would normally do that with a mouse or a keyboard, that sort of thing. So that's that's uh, live capture animation. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Think, so you were doing those two things. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and we made over a hundred episodes of of TV there over the course of six or seven years. Yeah, that was that was a very fun time. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah, of, and um, it was a lot of late nights, um, but we pulled it off. And I bet you animation was changing during that time as well. Tools were changing. Uh, you know, the computers were changing. There was a lot of change in the industry during that time. So. Um, are you still using any of the tools that you were using back then? Um, or what, you know, what have been some of the staples in your toolbox as you make the animation? Yeah, a lot of them are still the same, but they've evolved. So like using that same motion capture software, but now it has just a ton more features and is way more robust. You know, back then it was really bare bones and like, hey, you know, we have these three features. And now it's like, all right, we have this, you know. 16 features and they're all really good and solid and they won't break your program if you try and use them, which happened pretty often. Um, so the main tools I use on a day-to-day basis as an animator, After Effects, Premiere, um, which is just mostly for playback, uh, Character Animator, Blender, um, which Blender is a three-dimensional, um, mostly a three-dimensional um, space. So that's where you can um, take like text and turn it into a 3D extrusion that then, you know, feels more like something that actually exists in real life as opposed to 2D, which is, you know, it looks more like it's on a piece of paper. Um, and it's you can fake 3D and 2D, which is called 2.5D, which we're actually going to talk about that <laughs> in one of the films we're going to talk about. But that that's a really interesting halfway mark because you're in a 3D space, but you have 2D planes in 3D space. So you don't actually have mm-hmm. 3D geometry. You have 2D geometry that then is in 3d space <laughs> so you can actually like light things um a little bit more properly that sort of thing so you can actually use a 3d light and light 2d 2.5d scenes it's hard you can't really do that with a 2d space um so yeah there's there's upsides and downsides to that it can make your life a lot easier if you're trying to go for more complex things but it can also spiral out of control pretty quickly <laughs> and become very very complex yeah, and it sounds like to me that there is there math involved. Like, do you where is the fine line between left brain and right brain uh, work and animation? I will say, I it's one of those things where <laughs> I never thought I would be getting into this sort of animation, and I I'm like really kicking myself for not taking a trigonometry class because <laughs> that would have helped a lot in uh, in some of what I'm doing. Um, wow. But yeah, it's it, it depends on your comfort level because there are ways around having to use that math that didn't used to be the case. It used to be, you know, back in the olden days, you had to like understand how to write computer code to animate in a computer. And now it's like so user friendly that you don't necessarily need to understand, you know, the complex math behind it. It can make your life easier if you know the complex math. So you're not just like fiddling around and going, OK, what does this do? What does that do? How does this tie into that? <laughs> that sort of thing. If you if you understand the math, I've learned a lot more about math in the last three years learning 3D than you than ever, ever have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing kind of all that back history and what the tools are you're using now. I want to get into that later. Um, like I said, I think this discussion of animation on a documentary podcast is really important uh, because... I think you're going to see more and more of this blending of mediums uh, in documentary filmmaking. And so I wanted us to explore this a little bit. 
Um, and I'm going to actually use a very old article um, that I found as I was you know, doing some research for this podcast. Um, and it's from uh, the um, IDA website, International Documentary Association. It's a great resource. Um, and this article is when documentaries get graphic, animation meets actuality. Um, the first paragraph starts out by saying a growing subgenre of documentary film, the animated documentary, poses a network of challenging existential questions for the form. And while purists might cling to traditional sanctioned mores, a healthy reevaluation of our inventory is inspiring filmmakers to experience, uh, experiment and push boundaries. Um, the use of animation and other abstract and you know connotative forms in documentary isn't new. Um, and this article was from 2009, which I find fascinating. And Jason and I talked a little bit about this. Um, I feel like this article could have been written today because I do know that it yeah. was happening earlier, you know, back in this 2004, you know, early 2000s, let's say. But I feel like there's been a rebirth of this in the last three years or so because I'm seeing so much more of it. Um, recently. And it it sounds like this article fits that because they're saying that some of the um, initial use of animation and documentary was with Lusitania in 1918. Um, and then you can go back to this short called Chris, uh, Chris Landis short called Ryan from 2004, which I highly recommend people see. Uh, it was just this groundbreaking, in my opinion, very well done and emotional little short using a bunch of different types of animation um, to tell a story where there really wasn't anything else to tell the story. And that's where I think this animation can come into play. Just like I said, with our film, we're trying to tell this history where nothing exists. We either have a talking head tell the history Oh, we even thought about going back and showing paintings of those eras to help us tell the story. But it's just not as engaging. And that's why I was entertaining this idea of animation. And, you know, that's what this story, Ryan, kind of um, talks about. It's free. You can find it on the Internet. We'll put a link in the in the notes. But this is a complicated story that there really was nothing to tell other than sitting there interviewing a man. I mean, you did see this as well, didn't you? Yeah, it's incredibly surreal. <laughs> it's it is it's surreal. Like, it, the other thing about it that that blew me away was that it came out in two thousand four. Because it, yeah, I just <laughs> I don't know how they were pulling off such photo. It's not really photorealistic, but there there are parts of it where you're like, wait, was this actually like a real person? And then they did it. Like, no, I totally think yeah. that what they did is they sat down and they did an interview. There's actually three people that are interviewed in this documentary, and they started with an actual interview. And you then they just twisted it all kinds of ways uh, in order yeah. to make this very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, surreal. It's like surrealism, right? Yeah. Um, is really what yeah. the art form is, I think. Um Yeah. And so you're hearing the story of these people, you're hearing the interview, you're looking at real parts of the people in this interview, but they're very much distorted to show the emotion and what isn't spoken. I mean, that, that was yeah. what was fascinating to me. All the animation conveyed the feeling and the emotion. 
Did you notice? Yeah. Yeah. It's So what kinds of animation did you see there? Because it wasn't just one type. Like they used hand-drawn animation. They used stuff I didn't even recognize. Yeah. Yeah, there again, there are just there are pieces of this where it's like I'm not even sure how I would do that today with today's modern tools, let alone mm. back then. So you're looking at, you know, I'm just I'm just clicking through it again. There's these pieces of it that are like an animated photo almost where it's like they took an actual picture of a person recreated them in 3d with that photo version of themselves mapped to the character and then put them in 3d space with 2d objects and it's it's just again incredibly surreal Uh, yeah not surprising that it won an oscar in 2004 uh for this type of work yeah for only being 13 minutes there's just so much variance in it like you know looking at even like i'm noticing things in the background that i didn't even notice before where it's like they're talking and one character is really getting kind of emotional and like the background behind him starts smearing away like it's still there but it's just like the details are getting smushed down to the side and it's just ah i don't even yeah that's what i loved about it like animation um it expresses the feeling in the storytelling yeah. It also advances the story. The animation in this almost becomes a character of its own. Yeah. It's yeah. remarkable. Um, it really is. <laughs> so I would highly suggest people watch that. It's Chris Landreth's Oscar-winning film, Ryan, from 2004. Link will be down below in the show notes. Um, I'm going to go back to this article. It says, as contemporary filmmakers receive more attention and acclaim for their use of animation in documentary... I love this line. This issue is dropped on the doorstep of the industry like an abandoned magical child that refuses to be ignored. Uh, and I also think that that's what's happening. We kind of it kind of dipped in um, uh, popularity, but now it's kind of coming back. It does refuse to be ignored, and I do think that there are two reasons for that now, and maybe why it's burst onto the scene. Tell me what you think. But um, one. There is just, we have to come up with creative ways to tell the story when we don't have archival images or photos and we're tired of using talking heads. You know, what are there, what other options do we have to advance the story? That's number one. Two, now we have a whole audience of media consumers that have been raised on animation, raised on all sorts of, you know, twisting of film and art. And I think that is more interesting to them. I mean, our children are and younger people. They're graphically overstimulated. They're used to instant conversation. Um, Our audience members have changed. And I think sitting there watching talking heads and some archival photos is just not as compelling as animation. And I think that we're also we're coming out of a, a time period of massive disruption, particularly for the production industry, where, you know, we had the pandemic. And so it made it so much more difficult to shoot things in person. And animation definitely is like, well, we could record remotely, you know, get you a good microphone and record your audio. And then we could figure out how to make it, you know, a documentary with the tools we have in front of us. And whether that's animation or stock, you know, stock photos or whatever, I think that you're seeing that that's a major reason why I think we're seeing a resurgence right now 
because how else could you tell a story if you couldn't travel, you couldn't go talk to these people, you couldn't actually sit down in a room with them for, you know, potentially a year, year and a half of time, you know, just it, it, it makes it so much more difficult to actually go and do these things. Yeah. And actually, there's a paragraph in this article that says exactly that. Uh, just as important for many filmmakers, animation comes as a practical answer. Faced with a deficit of materials, which would to reconstruct an event or illustrate the written word, um, the trend among documentarians has been to animate a short sequence within a feature. Um, the possibility of real-time filming or the prohibitive costs and general distaste for reenactments have also led to animated techniques. This is in 2009. That's what I'm saying. Like We could have written this today. Totally yeah. true. You were right on, Jason. Now, yeah, I, um, yeah. I was going to ask, you, you've had recreations in um, The Girl Who Wore Freedom, right? Yep. Um, yep. Did you have any blowback at all with with that? Did anyone ever go like, how did you get that footage or anything like that? Did you ever have any sort of pushback on it? Well, what I think is interesting is that prior to me doing that, there was a lot of resistance to using reenactments in any documentaries to begin with. And I think it's because they were really poorly done. Like my husband's like, don't put, you know, he watches all kinds of war movies. He's like, do not put re reenactments in your war films. But I think what's happening is reenactments are becoming much more real and they're becoming much more like narrative work, right? And so it feels like, and, and that's what this article began with. We feel like we're melding genres here and they're almost becoming indistinguishable from one another. So is this an animated film or is this a documentary? Or is this a narrative film or is this a documentary? Or what if you put all three of them into a documentary? Is it still a documentary? Um, and I think, you know, we had pushback early on about those reenactments. I think we're going to have pushback if we're going to talk about using animation um, but I think yeah. they're all becoming much more accepted to the audience as it becomes more normative. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think, you know, we're coming off of the Oscars where Pinocchio by Guillermo del Toro won, you know, yeah. best animated feature. And the whole, you know, conversation around that is animation is cinema. It is filmmaking. It is, you know. And so you're talking about documentaries and animation, which are both kind of these sidelined art forms compared to narrative filmmaking. A lot of people, you know, prefer like, oh, well, I, I don't want to watch this documentary or I don't want to see that's an animated film. And so you start to <laughs> smoosh all three of these together and with reenactments and animation and documentary into one. And you're just going to get a lot of people going, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, film festivals, where are we going to fit, right? It's uh, It does get a little bit confusing. I'm curious yeah. about cost. So if you're if a filmmaker is looking at telling something that they don't have, you know, something visual, you know, to tell, and they are looking at reenactments versus animation, let's say, which one is more expensive? Well, that's a question. <laughs> that is a quite <laughs> question. Because um, it really... It really is going to depend on what you're reenacting and also what type of animation you want to pull off. Because if you're just going for like, you know, something that's a little bit more. I hate to use this example, but like newer Simpsons, you know, a little bit more like, oh, yeah, we have, you know, these car these characters, they're kind of cartoony. They, you know, we can animate them really cheaply because, you know, we 
you know, they're, they're not, we're not redrawing them every frame, right? So it depends on the style of animation you're going for. And that is largely informed by the subject matter, which, which you're talking about, which we were, we were talking about, was it a head shorter? Was that the, the name of yes, the documentary? And there's two movies I want to talk about. Uh, there is the head shorter and there is um, Ruth Ravenia, the story of Ruth Ravenia. Um, and I'm super, um, you know, interested um, because to hear what you have to say about this, because I am curious about this type of animation. It kind of looks like a chalk drawing or watercolor drawing. Um, yeah. And this is a woman who was um, in the Holocaust and she remembers seeing her friends next door be hung and then was carted off to a concentration camp. And you see live interviews with her, but all of the difficult stories are animated. And so I'm curious as, you know, what kind of animation that was. Uh, and we're also, we'll put the link in the film. It is called An Inconvenient Time. That is the name of the short documentary. I learned about this um, at the Chagrin Documentary Film Festival. I think that's where it was. Uh, what kind of animation is that in an inconvenient time? Yeah. So I'm honestly not completely sure. <laughs> I tried to figure it out. I can't tell if it's like actual watercolors, which is one thing that people will do, right? Like, you know, draw chalk, watercolor, charcoal, something like that, and scan that and then cut it out in digital, right? So then they can make these. Because you know, it kind of looks like parallaxing. I don't know if you know what parallaxing yeah. is, but parallaxing mm -hmm. is where you, for those of you who don't know, you take a photo, you kind of cut out, um, you know, the image and move everything around in an animated style. And it does sort of seem like that. And that's, that's the key to, that's one of the main things that like Disney pioneered was the multiplane camera that allowed parallax in animation. And so like, you know, I'm just watching this again. I, I think, do you know what year this came out? Yeah, it was 2021. Okay. It so was it's, at the film festival I was at. It's more likely that this is digital that was made to look like a physical medium. That would okay. be my guess. Um, and then placed in that 2.5D space or really well faked in 2D space, <laughs> which <laughs> I would guess based on how the movements are really consistent, really well done, I would assume it's actually 2.5D. Um, but it's, it's totally well, possible that this was scanned in. What I suspect, too, is A, this is a short uh, B, this was an independent film and it was done by kind of a family as they're interviewing this woman over a course of time. So I I think they probably did this on a very small budget, which mm -hmm. is possible when you're in this indie space to find people that want to exhibit their work or they want to take it on as a challenge. Um, I do still feel like that kind of animation is going to be less expensive than a reenactment that I did. Oh, yeah. You know, those yeah. I didn't even I barely paid the actors for the animation in the early war freedom and taking Carenton, but the cost was huge just to get over there and get the cameras and you know then you're Costumes. talking about wardrobe and you're yeah you're talking about yeah. so many things so for me I just feel like maybe animation is a less expensive option than reenacting yeah if you're going for something like the animation that was in an inconvenient time it, it's really it's not necessarily animation as much as it is that's leaning more towards motion graphics right so it's like okay you're not animating the characters you're not animating a lot of these things that are 
more complex and take more time. So you have it, it, what you're looking at here is more like upfront art cost that then you make interesting with a little bit of motion graphics. So like, okay, we're going to cut out these two characters and we're going to separate the background and then we're going to zoom in and we're going to have the background change a little bit, you know, that sort of thing. That's not nearly as intense as like, all right, we got to draw a new character for each frame. This would actually be the more expensive cost would be paying the illustrator to draw it up front, mm -hmm. probably. It's totally okay. possible that, you know, like you said, it's a family and I'm looking at it and it's like, I could see, you know, this, this could be someone in this family did this for free because that, that's a large part of how I make animations now is like I've taught myself to draw good enough that I don't have to hire another artist, which is when I first <laughs> started, we needed to hire other artists. And now I've progressed to the point where it's like I can make art that is good enough for production. So that's one way to bring down the cost <laughs> is to sure. be good at drawing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Teach yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. Also, one other thing that I want to bring in here is that, uh, and this goes back to Brett Morgan's film, Chicago 10. So they employ motion capture animation as they recreate the trial of the Chicago 7. Um, this was animation was used as a device to give him more control over how this seminal historical event was represented. Um, and he says, we tried to augment whatever archives were missing so the stories would unfold with the dramatic force of narrative. And I love that because, you know, that animation, you know, you really do want to have this powerful storytelling moment. And you cannot get that from a talking head. You just, you can't. You can get that to a degree in reenactment, for sure, particularly if you're really focusing on it as a narrative. But what I've watched in animation is it gives you the ability to tell the story in a powerful way. That's what I saw in this other film I want to talk about, A Head Shorter. Uh, that movie was so powerful. A short um, by Sasha. Let me see if I can figure out how to say her last name. Um, why don't you tell me what you saw as you watched this film while I find her last name? Yeah. So A Head Shorter is absolutely fascinating because like you're talking about, it's cutting between, you know, an interview every once in a while, but it mostly lives in this world of animation. And you said that was one person, one person did that, that whole thing. Well, yeah, pretty much. I don't know yeah. if she did the animation herself, but um, it's Sasha Fortnick. So sorry about that, Sasha. She's probably going to listen to this and be like, why don't you know my name? <laughs> anyway, Sasha, <laughs> Sasha Fortnick. Uh, she really was the force behind this film. Um, and I don't know about the an animation, but uh, yeah, it's incredible. It's truly, it's, it's a really interesting mix of, of animation. Cause it's one of those things where th this movie, the tone of it is whimsical, but also mm -hmm. horrifying. <laughs> and the mm -hmm. artwork is both simultaneously because yeah. it, you know, it, it's around the Holocaust and surviving that and maybe killing somebody during the Holocaust. Um, but in, in self-defense and being a, a prisoner in, in one of the camps and, to have struck that balance so well that it's it's so captivating that you're you're pulled into it that when it cuts back to the interview with the real person you're kind of jarred out of it it's like oh right <laughs> it's it's that guy it's not this right you feel like it's maybe not even real and i think that's 
maybe, I mean, I'm going to ask Sasha if she can come on our podcast because I want to hear actually how she developed this because you almost feel like this story is too surreal. It can't be really true. And you are interviewing this old man now who was 12 years old when he was taken to Auschwitz and you, it's the story of his journey. And he now is a, was a very successful businessman. And the question is, how did he get there from here? Um, you don't even understand that till the very end of the film. Um, but what's interesting is it kind of reminded me a little bit of Jojo Rabbit, where they take this really, really heavy, awful story, but they infuse it with something that makes the story palpable, right? If you just yeah. told that his story uh, in a narrated version, it would be very hard to take. Same with uh, An Inconvenient Time with Ruth Ravenia. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I I had not made that connection to Jojo Rabbit, but you're totally right. It's it allows the toughness of the subject matter to be more easy to relate to, almost. Which yeah. you know, like it, you know, and not to say that there isn't a place for things like Schindler's List, which is just you know straight up brutal. Yeah. Like here you go, but I think that using this sort of medium because I've heard the critique a lot. uh, you know, like, oh, another war movie about hiding, you know, people who are being hunted by the Nazis. You know, like that sort of thing. Like there's there's a lot. I've, I've heard that a lot. Whenever a new war movie drops that's about that, people kind of go, ah, you know, uh, there's always some reaction like that. And I think this was a really interesting look at how to tell somebody's story in a way you haven't seen before. Because I think that's that's what people are really getting at with that critique is like, I, I feel like I've seen this before. It's going to be a different story, but it's basically you know, hiding someone from the bad, the bad people. Right. Which right. even Jojo Rabbit is basically that story. Um, right. And I think that this was just like, let's embrace a totally different way of telling a story of someone who's going through something horrific. And it totally worked. It totally worked. It's really. Yeah. I think it sneaks in the back door. Right. It, it yeah. sneaks right yeah. past all of those defenses. Oh, another Holocaust story. I've heard this story before. Uh, this film totally sneaks by that. And there's another quote in this article um, that I'm going to go back to from the IDA. Um, on a more aesthetic level, this is from a filmmaker. Uh, on a more aesthetic level, um, there's a way in which more literal representations of certain things are less powerful than abstract ones because we've become so immune. If you start showing real footage of real violence, people in pain, then people stop listening. It impinges on your ability to listen to the story. Um, I was always, uh, you know, convinced uh, of, you know, implying, you know, the need to create visuals for the sound of a person's voice to come through and not compete with the visuals. And that's what I think uh, Sasha did such an amazing job of in this film, right? We just had become so immune to these stories but yeah. this is just captivating in the way they tell it and heartbreaking. And all of a sudden, you once again feel such incredible compassion for the horrible things that the Jews had to endure. I mean, every time you hear another story, you just can't imagine man's inhumanity to man. Um, yeah. So, yes, I thought animation was hugely successful. We did get to see the real man. We heard his real stories. Um, but yeah. the animation helped us uh, follow him along. And I think it's a really important thing to show him 
because it grounds it so much. It's not just, you know, this could be an actor who they hired to, you know, read it in an old man voice. Yeah, that's their thing. But like to actually see him, yeah, hear that 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 is him. That is yeah. really truly that it's a real you live through this. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh and it's that's really why cool. I love that 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 marriage of documentary film with animation because it shows you that this story really happened exactly what you said. Um Yeah. Yeah. So totally uh, so Zoom hands off to you, Sasha. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Uh if you're listening to this Thank you for making this. <laughs> it's a really unique uh, piece. But I was able to find um, Soul Proprietor uh, Studios is who made uh, the animation for um, this film. And so, yeah, I am curious what that budget was. Because at that point, yeah. you know, you bring in something like this. And it looks like there are, you know, multiple people at this studio. They aren't all listed in the credits, but you have multiple people. So, okay, you're paying for their salaries while they're working on this, right? So, you know, do you have an art director? Do you have then an illustrator under that art director? Is the art director actually illustrating everything? You know, what what is the scale we, of that? We That's will have really to bring to her on and ask her because the thing, yeah. that, I mean, the animation was just so well thought out in how they used animation to, like one scene that I remember is they actually show you how many people will fit into, you know, like, when the family went into the ghetto, well, they had a four by six space that, you know, seven people had to live in. Then they showed how many people are sleeping in the bunks. Then they did it by, um, you know, starting with people, but then they just became circles, you know, in yeah. rectangles, lying on beds. And you just began to see the sheer numbers of people that were forced into to these, you know, little yeah. sleeping barracks or whatever. It went from being a tangible thing to a tangible person and space to really abstract, but illustrates yeah. the point better. It's it's like there's there's this thing in illustration and artwork in general where it's clustering of details, detail clustering, um, and it's a it's a really interesting premise. I mean, you go look at any spaceship that people design and that sort of thing. It's where, where it's most noticeable. So you put details in one little spot and then you have a big open you know panel or whatever and so you're kind of seeing that in this piece you're seeing detail clustering on like this character has a face and really well designed clothes and that sort of thing and then this these characters over here they're just a crowd and they're one color that's just kind of generally shaped like a like people and it's a really interesting thing to look at from that perspective and see like where the eye is drawn because of detail that isn't or isn't there. And you get to see that happen in that scene. You get to see it go from being really detailed people. And then it goes to this abstract, non-detailed um, look that really Which explains is, the, the numbers. Yeah. And the parallel of exactly what happened to the Jewish people cannot be missed, right? They were real people, real lives, full of life, you know, fully developed individuals that were just blended down to absolute numbers and shoved into places and ignored and, you know, destroyed. Yeah. I mean, so I just, I loved that layers of storytelling that they were able to do with that animation that you can't normally do if you're doing reenactments or whatever. The other challenge I think, you know, that Sasha probably has faced is it's a short and where do shorts live? What are you going to do with these? I asked her, you know, 
where can our viewers watch this? And as of right now, there is nowhere for people to watch this. You can go and watch the trailer. We will put a link um, down in the show notes. But that is a challenge for, um, you know, shorts. Where are they going to go? Um, I hope this will find the light of day and people will be able to watch this film uh, because it's just so brilliant. Jason, I kind of want to sum up this animation discussion by asking you to give you know, our listeners some advice. So if, I, if we've got a documentary filmmaker listening right now who is contemplating the use of animation, they don't know anything about animation, but they want to begin seeing if they can use it in their storytelling, where would they start? Yeah, that <laughs> that's kind of a just such a big question. I think the the way that I would approach it is if you have a friend who can draw, talk to them and see what they feel about it. And and I mean that not like you know like going, oh, well, they're, you know, I'm going to use this friend to draw it or whatever. But I think talk to somebody and see what comes to their mind. Someone who's artistic in that way, talk to them and see if they see what you're seeing. Because I think that will really help you determine whether or not, like, is there a way to do this in a respectful way, in a way that actually approaches the subject matter well? And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a tool, right? And so determining whether or not it's the right move really depends on the situation. But I think talk to people around you. If you don't know animation yourself, if you can't do it yourself, if you can't illustrate yourself, talk to people around you who can, because you probably know somebody <laughs> and just see what they think, because they're going to have a much better grip on how this could pull off uh, than, than you might necessarily. And, you know, I say that as someone who did not used to be able to draw and now can draw there is a weird curve of like being able to um, synthesize your thoughts into drawing <laughs> that yeah, I yeah. think is particularly if you don't have that much of a budget, you know, it can be cost prohibitive to get artwork made and then do some sort of animation with it. Like we're talking about that, uh, the piece, uh, the the Ruth, Ruth piece. I don't remember the name. Uh, yeah, it's convenient time. The story of Ruth Ravinian. Yeah, that one is more upfront art cost, right? And then there's versions of that which are more simplified art, but go much more complex in the actual animation itself. And so finding a mix between those is going to be a really interesting time. I would say go watch a lot of documentaries with animation and figure out, does this work? Does one of these styles work? Well, and is and there I a mix that, between them that could work? Yeah. And I think you have to figure out what kind of style of documentary, um, you know, animation you're interested in. What will complement your story? I mean, I think that's where you need to begin. What kind of animation would uh, complement my story and um, develop the narrative? You know, you want the narrative storytelling to be what carries the day and also does not um, overtake, you know, the actual person talking or the actual um, story. And then um, I think that you ought to make friends with artists. Artists are the one that visually can see things and you need to figure out which one um, sees things the way that you do and can bring something to the table. Well, I can describe this incident, you know, that happened in this way and, or here's several different options or this is what I would recommend um, and test it out by doing a, a short little test to see what you think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Networking is going to be huge too. One thing you can do that um, I definitely saw help people when I was in school is like go to a community college, go to the art program and say, hey, do you have anyone who I could talk to? Or can I come and talk to a class and see what what sparks for people on this? You know, that sort of thing. Because like there was one um, class I took. It was a graphic design class. And a guy who was starting a business locally came in and said, I want a logo designed and I wanted to be a student because I want you to have something real in your portfolio, you know, that sort of thing. And I got put, we got put on teams and there were two of us and my team won. I didn't design the logo, but my team won. (laughs) The other person designed the logo and that really helped boost her confidence. And also just like it, we worked together then to pitch the logos, right? So it, you can add value to a student's life by going to them and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? Um, that's, and it, you can do it for free, but ideally you'd pay people at least a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's truthfully with the girl who wore freedom, we gave a lot of people opportunities like that where they wanted a canvas to paint on, whether it was editors or social media people. And, uh, they brought their own creativity to, to that thing. So starting at the college level, I would say sometimes even the high school level, they have incredible ideas and talents and you give people an opportunity to work on your projects. So that could be a good, a good place to start. Um, Sasha, who I hope will come on, Sasha Bortnick will come on to talk about uh, a head shorter. Maybe she will have some suggestions next time. But this has been a great discussion. Thank you, Jason, for explaining a little bit of animation to us. Um, it was really great to to learn from you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was uh, this was fun to to be kind of in the in the interviewee seat for a change. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, right now it is time for our segment, DocuView Deja Vu. DocuView Deja Vu. All right, Jason, do you have anything this week? Mine is actually going to be, uh, we talked about a lot of documentaries today. I don't think a lot of people are going to go watch them. Go watch Ryan. <laughs> go watch yeah. the one that we talked about. I, I absolutely go watch that 13-minute short because it is just so fascinating and such an interesting piece to have been made in 2004. I'm still. Yeah. And I think it's only 13 minutes, 16 minutes. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. And it's available for free. So you don't really have that much of an excuse, but go watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, we'll put a link below. A really good starting place. If you're thinking about animation for this stuff, you know, it's a great mix of different types and looks and feels and how it all pulls together. So, yeah, go give it a watch. So mine is MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Uh, Right now it is on Netflix. It is a series. I just watched the, well, I mean, I think maybe there's three episodes or it's a two hours and 38 uh, minute documentary probably broken up. Um, March 8th, 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared from radar. 239 people witnessing a global investigation into this greatest mystery. Despite reports, countless theories, and searches for evidence, nothing came up. What are we missing? And there is some animation, I mean, it's motion graphics, built into this documentary series. Uh, But it was fascinating. I thought it was very well done. I think it's incredibly tragic that we are still trying to piece this together. But I do recommend it. So that is our documentary for the week. All right. Is there anything else we need to touch on before we uh, wrap up here? 
Just want to update people real quick on the Girl Who Wore Freedom. We have our first draft of the trailer sizzle turned in thanks to Sam King. Uh, we still have a long way to go with that, but I'm excited to see film on a timeline. That was exciting. I am leaving for France tomorrow, so I'm going to go meet with our French partners and uh, traipse around Normandy a little bit with my um, friend Angie and her daughter Piper. Nope, not Piper, Addie. <laughs> her daughter Addie. And uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get some history that we can share on our social media while I'm there. I'm looking forward to that and hopefully uh, try to move the ball down the field in terms of some financing with the people in France. We'll see. Well, all right. I guess I guess we're wrapping up. So uh, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you could be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.